0: As 2021 truly gets underway, we are greeted with a brand new wave of crimes without suspects and peculiar mysteries that don't have answers. However, they are just more in a mammoth pile of unsolved cases, many of which have baffled experts and online sleuths alike for decades. Eventually, some of these enduring enigmas will see answers, but the truth is, Many will not. In today's episode of Cold Case Detective, we'll be exploring two strange, decades old mysteries that are still without answers. <laughs> The body in the cylinder. The story of the body in the cylinder began in the summer of 1943, when US soldiers were clearing an area at the back of the Methodist church on Boundary Street East in Liverpool, England. During World War II, Liverpool had been heavily destroyed and the blitzed site that was being cleared at this time was full of debris and had been largely neglected even before the war. While emptying the area, the soldiers came across an odd cylinder. The object was six foot nine inches long and around 19 inches in diameter. It was made of gauge nine steel and was thought to have been part of a ventilation shaft. One end of the cylinder was capped with a steel plate while the other was open. However, while attempting to move the object, the open end was crimped shut by a bulldozer. The cylinder was lifted from the rubble and laid on even ground shortly afterwards. For several years, the cylinder was used as a sitting area and as a play area for local children. Nobody thought to peer inside until July 13th, 1945, when three young boys who were playing with the object, rolling it through the street, decided to try and see if there was something inside. At first, they noticed a man's shoe, but then they quickly realized that this shoe was attached to a skeleton. The children were understandably alarmed and the authorities soon contacted. Upon opening up the cylinder, they found a full skeleton inside, along with several personal belongings. John Doe was an adult male around six foot tall. He was thought to have been at least over the age of 25 at the time of his death, but could have been as old as 50. The left base of John Doe's skull was missing and the cranium was broken near the left middle ear, although the coroner later insisted that this was not from violence. At some point, the head had become detached from the torso and a small amount of hair remained attached to the skull. It appeared that John Doe had crawled into the cylinder. There was not much room inside the narrow space for him to toss and turn or move around, and it looked as if he'd been using a brick wrapped in a sack as a pillow. Things became even stranger, however, when his clothing was examined. It was extremely old-fashioned and looked like the kind that was commonly worn in the Victorian era and was of high quality. The notion that John Doe could have lain in the cylinder undiscovered for 60 years became even more possible when authorities took a closer look at his belongings. Two diaries were found, dated 1884 and 1885. But unfortunately, they were mostly illegible. One entry was able to be read, dated June of 1885. It read, appointment for 1 p.m. with F.C. Greddy at cons. Another item discovered with the body was a decayed postcard, which was reconstructed by the coroner in 1945. It was postmarked Birmingham, dated July 3rd, 1885, and was addressed to a T.C. Williams from a Mr. A.E. Harris. This was not the only time the name T.C. Williams appeared. T.C. Williams and co appeared on the top of five account sheets, four of which were unused and all of which were found alongside the body. Other items found with John Doe included a handkerchief, a brooch, a well-worn signet ring, and a green shoe that was flecked with red. There was also a company receipt and a London Northwestern Railway advice note dated June 27th, 1885. On July 19th, 1945, an inquest was opened. It was determined that there was no evidence that John Doe was killed in the Blitz as was initially suspected. It also appeared that the body had been there since 1885 or 1890, Although the nature of the man's death was unable to be determined by the coroner due to the limited resources available at the time, the inquest was officially closed on August 31st, 1945, and an open verdict was recorded. However, one lead did emerge from the inquest. During it, T.C. Williams was named as a potential match for John Doe. T.C. Williams, whose full name was Thomas Cregan Williams, was a paint and brush manufacturer in Liverpool. he had started his own company in the 1870s, but by March of 1884 had been declared bankrupt. The inquest put forward the theory that Williams had left the family home due to financial difficulties and had opted to sleep in the cylinder at what was assumed to have been his business premises. Perhaps as he slept, the cylinder had become sealed and Williams suffocated to death. In the 1880s, it was very common for people to deliberately avoid their creditors. Perhaps the business owner's disappearance went unnoticed because his friends and family assumed he'd done just that. While T.C. Williams' wife's burial records were found, his weren't. Reportedly, Williams drops off the census after 1881. He had one son who was born in 1859. For a short time, the coroner thought that perhaps the body in the cylinder was the son rather than Williams himself. But this theory was later dismissed as he was considerably younger than the skeleton was estimated to be. The inquiry in 1945 attempted to look for relatives of Williams, but none were ever found. Another theory about the death of John Doe emerged from Reddit users who suggested that, perhaps if it was Williams, he'd gotten drunk to drown out the stress of his financial issues and had wound up attempting to sleep in the cylinder, but had died from alcohol poisoning or some other medical issue while inside the object. Others theorized that John Doe had fallen in after reaching for a dropped item and gotten stuck. It's even been postulated that Williams faked his own death to escape his creditors. But after 75 years, the identity of John Doe and what exactly happened to him remains a mystery. The Shark Arm Case. The Shark Arm Case is one of Australia's most bizarre and enduring mysteries. In mid-April of 1935, an aquarium owner and his son caught a four-meter-long, one-ton tiger shark, just 1.9 miles from the beach suburb of Coogee, an area of Sydney, not far from the famous Bondi Beach, and also where this detective used to live. The beast was quickly transported to the Coogee Aquarium Baths, where it was put on public display drawing in massive crowds who were astounded to see the creature up close, especially since shark attacks were on the rise at the time. Within a week of the shark appearing at the aquarium, it began behaving oddly, banging onto the glass and swimming in circles low to the ground. Eventually, on April 25th, the creature began to vomit. First, it threw up a rat, followed by a bird, and finally, the hand and forearm of a man with a piece of rope tied about the wrist. The shocked and stunned crowd had no idea what to make of the sick shark, at first assuming that the human remains were fake, but then the aquarium owner alerted the authorities, and it was clear that this was not a prank. It was later discovered that before its capture, the shark had swallowed a smaller shark, which is thought to have consumed the limb. Thanks to the distinctive tattoo of two boxers sparring, the limb was identified as belonging to a former boxer named James Smith, an Englishman born in 1890. James had been missing since April 7th and his tattoo had been recognized by his brother, Edward. The limb was conclusively identified via fingerprinting, which was a fairly new method of identification at the time and was a long arduous process for those involved. Before his death, James had gotten involved with criminal activity and was a police informant. A coroner determined that the limb had not been bitten off but that it had been sawn off with a blunt knife by somebody who had no medical skill. Due to this, an investigation was opened and authorities began to look into what exactly had become of James Smith. Early on, authorities uncovered a link between James and a wealthy, upstanding businessman named Reginald Holmes, who ran a successful boating business at Lavender Bay, New South Wales. A fraudster and a drug smuggler, Holmes was widely seen by society as a family man, and he was well-respected, but he had become more and more involved with criminal activities in the years leading up to James's death. Reportedly, Holmes had employed James on several different occasions to work insurance scams with him. It was later found that James had been blackmailing Holmes prior to his disappearance. From here, his final movements were easy to trace. Law enforcement discovered that on the day he was last seen alive, he'd been seen drinking and playing cards at the Cecil Hotel with a man named Patrick Brady who was an ex-serviceman and convicted forger and also part of a racket with Holmes and James. Police also found out that Brady had rented a cottage on the day James disappeared. They suspected that this was where he'd been slain. Some reports even claimed that the mattress along with a trunk had been replaced in the cottage. Although authorities attempted to find the rest of James's body by searching several locations, including Port Hacking and Gunnamatta Bay, their efforts ultimately proved fruitless. Despite having no body, Brady was arrested on May 16th and charged with the murder of James Smith. Several taxi drivers stepped forward to testify against him, including one who claimed he'd taken Brady to Holmes's address on the day James went missing. The witness described Brady as disheveled. He had a hand in his pocket and wouldn't take it out. It was clear that he was frightened. Meanwhile, officers were dispatched to speak with Holmes who initially denied knowing Brady. Four days later on May 20th, however, he went to his boat shed with a bottle of alcohol and a small caliber handgun and attempted to commit suicide. The attempt failed and merely stunned the businessman who fell back into the water. After climbing out, he got into his speedboat and began to drive, but he was soon tailed by policemen who saw him driving the vehicle erratically. Holmes led the officers on a chase that was several hours long before finally surrendering. At this point, he told the police that he thought someone was trying to kill him and had assumed the police were his assailants. However, the authorities were not interested in the tale he was telling. In June of 1935, Holmes decided to cooperate with law enforcement. He claimed that Brady had executed James on the night of the 7th, dismembered his body, and put him in a trunk, which he then threw into Gunnamatta Bay. This style of ocean burial was reportedly and grimly known as a Sydney send-off in crime circles in the 20s and 30s. According to Holmes, Brady then turned up at his house with the severed arm and demanded that he be paid 500 pounds, or he'd set Holmes up for the demise of James. Holmes then later disposed of the arm by throwing it into the ocean. On June 11th, late in the evening, Holmes told his wife that he had a meeting. She walked him to his car and saw him off, and that would be the last time she saw her husband alive. The following morning, the businessman was found in his car at Hickson Road, Dawes Point. He had been shot three times at close range, and the crime scene had been staged to look like a suicide. However, forensic experts who examined the scene determined that Holmes had been slain by somebody else. He had been due to give evidence at James's inquest later that morning. Despite being the star witness in the case, Holmes was never offered police protection. It is widely believed that Holmes took out a contract on his own life and that he did this for several reasons. The first is that his family would not receive a life insurance payout if he'd taken his own life. The other is that he wished to spare his family the public disgrace of his conviction. The inquest began on June 12th at the City Coroner's Court. Brady's lawyer claimed that there was not enough evidence to begin the inquest, arguing that the severed arm did, quote, not constitute a body, and that it was possible James was still alive without the limb. Without Holmes, the case quickly began to fall apart. There was simply not enough concrete evidence to prove that Brady took the life of James Smith. Ultimately, Brady was found not guilty and was acquitted. He maintained his innocence for 30 years until he died aged 76 in 1965. The body of James Smith has never been recovered and what happened the night he disappeared remains a mystery although there have been several theories over the years. One theory proposes that James was killed by other criminals because it was discovered that he was a police informant. Another theory suggests that perhaps Brady went out fishing that night and returned to find James's body. This idea was postulated when it was revealed that Brady's wife had followed him to the cottage that night because she believed he was seeing another woman. When she reached the cottage, however, she didn't hear one or two voices, but many, as if there was a group inside. A forensic expert later added that it's possible James's body was stuffed into a trunk, but the arms wouldn't fit, and so they were tied to it. One arm eventually dislodged and was eaten by the shark. This would explain why there was rope on the wrist. 86 years have passed since James Smith went missing. And the truth of what really happened to him the night he went missing remains to this day a mystery. And there you have the facts. Please leave a comment down below with your own theories and speculations. And remember to like this video and subscribe to support the channel. Thank you for watching. Stay alert, stay safe, and I'll see you next time.